Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One grim winter evening, when I had a kind of unrealist about London, with a fog sleeping relentlessly over the city, and the light showing in the blur, as if it is not London at all, but some strange place on another planet. They don't know the names of the plants, the names of the flowers, you know. Yes. It's like, you know, they knew what apples and daffodils were in the Caribbean because they read Wordsworth. But you know, they get to England and what they thought was this construction, of course, which was a myth, doesn't exist. Moses Alouetta hop on a number 46 bus at the corner of Chepstow Road and Westbourne Grove to go to Waterloo to meet a fella who was coming from Trinidad on the boat train. That's the opening line of The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvon, a novel that captures through Creole English and Calypso rhythms the lives, the loves and the loneliness of a group of Caribbean migrants living in London in the early 1950s. Sam Selvon was born in Trinidad and worked as a reporter for the Trinidad Guardian before catching a boat to Britain in 1950 and writing stories for the BBC Caribbean Voices programme. In 1956, he published his best-selling novel, The Lonely Londoners, which has become the iconic depiction of that first wave of post-war migration, the Windrush generation. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, we're going to coast a lime around the water where Sam Selvon describes his lonely Londoners. I'm standing in Waterloo, one of the largest railway stations in London. And the reason I'm here is that the opening scene of the novel takes place here in the railway station. And it's a great way to open this novel because for many of the West Indians who arrived in London in the 1950s, this was the portal, this was the entrance to London. The ships would dock at Southampton and people would pour onto the boat trains which would lead them up to the city and they disembark here at Waterloo. When Moses arrives here to meet a friend of a friend, he's struck by a feeling of homesickness because this place, of all the places in London, feels the closest to home. Sam Selvon says, The old Waterloo is a place of arrival and departure. 
is a place where you see people crying goodbye and kissing welcome. It was here that Moses did land when he came to London, and he have no doubt that when the time come, if it ever come, it would be here he would say goodbye to the big city. He bumps into his old friend Tolroy from Jamaica, who's meeting his whole family off the train. And once everybody else has piled off the train, he finally meets this friend of a friend called Henry Oliver, and who's quickly christened Galahad in the novel. They jump on the tube and head to Bayswater, which is where Moses lives. And we're going to do the same, jump on the tube and head up to Bayswater to meet our guest for this episode. Which part are you living, asks Galahad, when they're on the tube? In the water, says Moses, Bayswater to you until you're living in the city for at least two years. And this community have other names for each of the locations they live in. So Bayswater is the water, Labrick Grove is the grove, Notting Hill is the gate. And Galahad says, why they call it Bayswater? Is it a bay? It have water? Take it easy, Moses say. You can't let everything the first day you land. And you might notice we don't talk much of a tube because it's making too much noise. Well, I'm sitting now outside a cafe on the corner of Chepstow Road and Westbourne Grove, which is the exact spot that the novel The Lonely Londoners opens. Today, this is a a busy and rather smart-looking crossroads. We've got an art gallery on one corner, we've got a farrow and ball paint shop on another corner, but you feel it would have been very different in the 1950s when The Lonely Londoners is set, when Moses jumps on the bus here. Um, and it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest for this episode today, Sushila Nasta. Hi, Sushila. Hello there. Sushila is the Professor of Contemporary and Modern Literatures at Queen Mary, University of London. And in 1984, she founded the groundbreaking literary magazine Wasafiri, which has been uh, since then a showcase for international contemporary writing and recently celebrated its 100th issue. Sushila knew Sam Selvon personally and is in fact his literary executor. And I can't think of a better person to be joining us today to talk about The Lonely Londoners. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about Sam. And as I was coming here today, I all the kind of layers of time since I met him in 1976 um, started to unfold. How did you come to meet him? Um, I was doing a postgraduate thesis at the University of Kent on the Caribbean novel of exile and uh, my supervisor Louis James was a specialist on Jean Rhys and had been part of the Caribbean artist movement in the 70s which was also at the University of Kent. So Louis knew Sam and he said Sam's coming to read, you should hear him. And um, following that, we had a curry at my fairly small student house um, for about 30 people. And Sam was um, a great cook. And that was the beginning of our friendship, really. Um, And we met for a drink the next day. And when he used to come to London, informally, I acted as his sort of agent, setting up gigs for him and so on. And we just became friends. And um, what, are, what are your memories of him? What was he like as a person? Um, he was a wonderful person. He, he was very humble, not at all arrogant. He didn't particularly like talking about his work in terms of what he read, what influences 
had impacted on him in a kind of academic way. He, he wasn't a poser on panels, but audiences absolutely loved him. He was extremely mild and very, very generous to other writers. Sam actually met George Lamming by chance on a boat journey from Barbados, Trinidad to London. George Lamming was a famous Barbadian writer who wrote a book called The Pleasures of Exile, which is all about arriving in London. Very different from Sam Selvon, but they met on this boat and they used to fight over the imperial typewriter, which Sam had and, and actually <laughs> was still typing his film script with me in my right. flat in 94. He still insisted on... Well, really? I had to find him a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, but he he wrote the first draft of A Brighter Sun His first on that novel. journey, and he got that published extremely fast. Fantastic. So, Sheila, tell us about Wasafiri and how it began. Um, well, I'm half Indian, half English myself. I suppose I really encountered Britain in a big way, even though I was born here in the 60s which was the period of Enoch Powell. Um, yes. We ended up in a provincial town in Ipswich, Suffolk. And I think I hit racism. And that began to impact on me as a youngish adolescent at school. Also, I was interested in literature, I think, by the time I was about 15, 16. And I didn't realise at the time, but I never read anything um, that was kind of relevant to my background, apart from Ian Forster's Passage to India in the sixth form. And then when I went to Kent, I encountered writers like Jean Rees, who had a big impact on me, Sam Selvon, Derek Walcott, Soyinka. Then I trained to be a teacher, and I realised quite soon, and there was a lot of racism in Britain in the late 70s, early 80s, I realised that, again, another generation or, or many generations of children were not going to be able to access this wonderful international writing and were being deprived of that vision. So... I started Wasafiri in a way, initially, to try and change that in a broad sense, to reach a wide audience and to give these writings a proper critical space because they weren't getting it in national newspapers. And Wasafiri has a fantastic reputation for being ahead of the curve and often picking up great writers who don't have an outlet elsewhere, who go on to do extraordinary things. Most recently, I suppose Bernadine Evaristo, who's just won the Booker Prize, found yep. some of her first outlet in Wasafiri. In Wasafiri. That's right. So let's talk about The Lonely Londoners. And maybe this would be a good place and a moment to talk about the two main characters in that book, particularly Moses, around whom the novel kind of revolves. So Sheila, could you introduce... Moses to us. Who is he? What's he like? Well, Moses, as Sam would always say, was just a simple man from the Caribbean who'd come to London in the 1950s and hung out with a lot of Caribbean migrants. Many of those migrants first discovered that they were from the Caribbean in London, and, and that's an important point, because they came from different islands. Right. Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Tobago, British Guyana, as it then was, and actually, the communications between the islands weren't so How wonderful. So Caribbean identity was, in a sense, formed in the 1950s right. in London when these migrants arrived during the period which everybody knows of post-Windrush. Um, obviously, Sam created these characters, Moses, and I think, obviously, Sir Galahad from the Arthurian myth, Moses, prophet in the wilderness from the Bible. He creates these mythical characters and has them 
inhabit a city which is both real and unreal. And Moses is, at the opening of the book, a kind of wise veteran journeying on the bus from this location here at Chepstow Road um, and Westbourne Grove to meet Galahad at Waterloo. And of course, there's the whole scene which is quite poignant at the beginning of the novel where you have someone from the Evening Standard trying to interview the new arrivants and put them into pigeonholes. And of course, part of this mythological element of the novel is actually in a way to both protect these characters who are strangers in a big city. They've come to London because they think the streets are paved with gold. There's an illusion, they're colonials. They've grown up on the idea of the motherland. They've grown up on an idea of speaking English. Yes, but they get here across the sea. And the dislocation is even worse than what they experienced as colonials in the islands. And so their mythological identities is both an inflation and a deflation at the same time. There's a description of the Harrow Road, which is just north of here. It's largely blocked by the Westway now, which wasn't built at the time. But there's a description of the houses being old and grey and weather-beaten, the walls cracking like the last days of Pompeii. It ain't have no hot water, and in the whole street that Tolroy and them living in, none of the houses have bath. And so you can really, you can see how the area really kind of uh, was sort of crumbling around this um, community. I think it was the main kind of colour was grey, a greyness about London, which, which a lot of these migrants whether Caribbean migrants or other migrant novels describe in terms of post-war London. And I think one has to remember it is... I mean, it's published in 1956, but he's probably writing it already in 1954. Uh-huh. And it's that post-war period, Britain is pretty run down. And it's yes. not only the West Indian migrants who are living in these dilapidated houses, it's the working classes. Yes. And it's also people who've lost partners in the war, yes. whom he talks about There's a ra- quite really a bit. Touching... The old geezers yes. stumbling about, lost post the Second World War. So it's this whole kind of post-war community which the nation was trying to sort of hide in some ways Mm. and it's kind of metaphorically described in terms of these crumbling houses which of course the migrants have been asked to come to Britain to repair and to provide labour to recreate the world now. Yes, to fix that broken community, yeah. Yeah. But yes, I mean this area is is so different now, I think um, I think Sam would find it very very hard to kind of imagine yes, it today. So, yes, I, I imagine, yeah. We're walking south now on Chepstow Road, walking through the area that Sam Selvon knew well and the characters in The Lonely Londoners inhabit. Sushila, I feel like one of the first things that strikes you when you read this book is the language that it's written in and the vocabulary that the the narrator and the characters use. How would you describe it? What are its characteristics? Well, I think the first thing to say about it is that it it mimics or it it captures the sound of a kind of Trinidadian Caribbean vernacular. Uh A lot of people think when they first read it that that is actually how Sam spoke or that's actually how he wrote. In fact, he constructed the language to create a kind of literary form of the vernacular Mm -hmm. which encapsulated the voice of these unlettered immigrants and the pekong, as they call it, of Trinidadian satirical kind of Calypsonian wit 
but at the same time was a kind of literary language accessible to anyone who's reading it. The, the point about it is, of course, that he's using that language for both the voice of the narrator and the characters so that the narrator is not separate from those characters and is part of the community. There's a great piece he wrote in 1988 where he describes working that out. and He writes, I experimented with the language as it is used by Caribbean people. I found a chord. It was like music. And I sat like a passenger in a bus and let the language do the writing. Such a lovely image, that. Absolutely. And and of course, it's the language that he creates that transforms the city. And also the language that the boys use as they if you like, graduate into more experienced migrants in the city that transforms them into more um, mature characters, which by the end of The Lonely Londoners is, is what's beginning to some take of them shape. Some are getting there, yeah. yes. Yes, it, and it's also, I suppose it's a, in some ways it's a defensive strategy as well to create a kind of linguistic community as well as a social community. It's a way of staking their identity in this city and by giving the places nicknames and giving themselves nicknames, they're kind of marking it out and and staking their claim. Absolutely, and and I think one of the things he does, which, you know, famously Louise Bennett, the Caribbean poet, called colonising Britain in reverse, in a sense, and I, and, and I wouldn't, wouldn't limit what Sam Selwyn is doing to this, but in a sense he is both decolonizing and colonizing the city from a Caribbean perspective in the sense that because they've come from such small islands and because they need to name the place to make them feel part of it and to tell stories. And that's what Sam Selvon is doing. This is a group of boys who don't know each other. They're called boys because they're innocents abroad and they construct stories to bring themselves together. Well, let's talk about those boys. Let's introduce some of them because... uh the stories about them, the ballads that the narrator tells about them are the kind of the moving pieces of this novel. We've got Tolroy, who's from Jamaica. Moses bumps into him at Waterloo. There's Galahad, of course, who we've heard about. There's Bart, Lewis, Big City, Five Past Twelve. It's a wonderful community of friends that you feel like you get to know by the end of reading the book. Yeah. And actually, they've all, all those names kind of signify an element of their personalities. So right. Big City, of course, who can't full up forms, is from a small place and actually is very, you know, pretty illiterate. But he puffs himself up. Yes. And Bart is always looking for his girlfriend, Beatrice. That's the story about him. And that's, again, linked to Dante yes, and comedy. the underworld. And, and London is a kind of underworld as well. Yes, um, yes. And you have Tolroy, who's always playing his guitar, I think, who's yep. from Jamaica. You know, so there's a kind of tagline with, with each of them. But in a sense, it's also, you know, as you have with groups of kids at school, you know, everyone has a nickname. But if, yep. And if you're not part of the group, you're outside the group. And if, if you don't know the story, you're outside the group. So in a sense, it is a kind of protective shield. On the other hand... You know, who the hell are they? They're yeah. flat. Yeah, yeah. Well, another one of the boys, and one of the most memorable, is Cap, yeah. short for Captain, who he never does an ounce of work, but somehow always manages to get along and um, get the girl, and he's sort of this sort of miracle worker. And one of, we're actually just turning now onto a street called Dawson Place, where Cap uh, lives at one point in the novel in one of the top-floor flats now very smart looking 
tall townhouses with white pillars outside the doors. At the time, they would have probably been a lot more uh, run down. And, um, and of course, Cap is absolutely starving. He's got no money for food. And he becomes aware that there are seagulls sitting on the parapet outside his window. And he manages to lasso one of these seagulls and get it into his room and then chases it round the room in this kind of hilarious but rather poignant episode because he eventually tackles it to the floor and, and, and makes a sort of tasty dinner out of it. And it's a, it's a kind of ridiculous but also rather a moving episode, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and all these episodes and ballads are always very funny, but there's a kind of underlying pathos. And as Selvon constantly says, they're only laughing because they're afraid to cry. So, Sheila, food is very important throughout the novel, isn't it? I mean, there aren't many today, but there's a great description of um, one of the West Indian groceries uh, that crops up um, with this community in the area. One of the existing groceries starts importing... Um, breadfruit and okra and, and it's one of the things that brings these boys together isn't it food yeah yeah because obviously food is very much a ritual isn't it and even though they're only maybe surviving on pigeons they catch off seagulls um they sit around in a group and they eat it in west indian style and the other thing with the shop in the harrow road you know um it, it also becomes colonised with the different kinds of foods, as London is today. We have so many foods in London, and it is a ritual, and it brings communities together. A, a kind of key element of the experience is the struggle they have to find work in the city and the discrimination they come up against when they're hunting for jobs. Um, and there's that very uh, kind of unsettling scene near the beginning when Moses takes Galahad to the employment exchange near Edgware Road, and, and they walk into this room, and it... it the very kind of smell of the room smells of desperation and struggle looking for work. And I imagine that must have been a kind of daily problem for that community in the 50s. I think so. And uh, I think it was, a again, this it, kind of journey to an illusion because, of course, the post-war government actually advertised in the islands, which is why so many of these black migrants came to Britain, advertised for cheap labour right. uh, with the idea that they would earn lots of money as that's why migrants often come into countries after all to send money home and so many of them came and then they arrive in London into this grey city and they go to the labour exchange and, and Selvon of course describes that in the book and and are completely gutted by the, the situation that they encounter added to which you have kind of layers of racism on top yes. and so they're, they're offered menial jobs but Galahad going to the labour exchange with Moses he's strutting about like a lord he's just got off the boat from Trinidad he doesn't know what this city's about and then he hits be. the reality and people look at him saying yeah who are you yeah. and and people are arriving thinking they're going to come for four or five years make money and then go back to the islands and one of the recurring ideas in the book is the sense of are you going to go back or are you going to stay? And, and actually how difficult it is to get out of London once you've arrived. And we've got this wonderful recording that you made, Sushila, of Sam speaking, and I thought we'd listen to a little bit of it now. So what's happening, Tolroy? I don't see you with your guitar these days. Every year, he vowing to go back to Trinidad. But after the winter gone, and birds sing, and all the trees begin to put on leaves again, and flowers come, and now and then the old sun's shining. It's as if life starts all over again, as if it still have time, 
as if it still have another chance. I will wait until after the summer. The summer does really be hot. But it reached a stage, and you know it reached that stage where he gets so accustomed to it that he don't do anything about it. Sure, I could do something about it, he tell himself, but he never do anything. He used to wonder about back home where he have a grandmother and a girlfriend who always writing him and asking him why he don't come back, that they would go and live in Grenada where her father have a big estate. Why you don't go back to Trinidad? What happening, man, what happening? If I give you this ballad last night, you went to see the Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square? How is giving a dance in Brixton next Saturday you're going? A fella asking the Home Secretary in the House of Commons, are you aware that there are more than 40,000 West Indians living in Britain? It's so wonderful to hear his voice. It's so, um, it strikes me as so gentle and uh, thoughtful. And, yeah, he sounds like a, a wonderful man. He was a wonderful man. Of course, he was a, a middle-class East Indian Trinidadian. He, you know, so he came from an Indian background, not actually an Afro-Caribbean background. Um, and he was very, very sensitive to voice. And he wanted to be a musician, actually, himself. He, he loved music. Um, and he worked. He was a poet as well as a... You know, as, as well as a novelist, and of course, these London novels are written in the vernacular. But he wrote a lot of Trinidadian novels, which are written in standard English. This area has changed so much over the years, hasn't it? I mean, these must have been built as very grand houses in the early 19th century. I guess Absolutely. as London was expanding, they're um, villas, aren't they? Really, these and um, a yes. lot of the, I think, a lot of the migrants that Sam is writing about. Um, shared rooms in the, they had big rooms so they shared rooms in these houses and there was a, a famous landlord whose name I can't quite remember at the moment who Rackham Rackham the Polish who was landlord. really yes. exploiting all these migrants and of course it was the era when nobody could get rooms because it said no coloured no Irish no dogs outside and it was around here these signs would have been up in the window right gosh so, that is yeah. that's extraordinary to think there's that moment um, at the beginning of the novel as people are coming off the train from the boat and there's a Brixton landlord who's kind of waiting to pounce on innocents who don't know London and saying, I've got this great place, and he's just cramming them into these packed and th houses. And that's why Moses, in a sense, is the kind of shepherd, the, right. the kind of prophet leading them into a safe place and initiating them into the rights of the city before yeah. they get pounced on by these people. Right, right. So it's the, it's the island mentality spread large in the big city. We're just coming now towards Queensway, the busier road that leads down to um, Kensington Gardens, and passing the shell of Whiteley's department store, which used to be Whiteley's, now just completely gutted, and, and as we're walking past today, surrounded by scaffolding, and um, that would have been quite a landmark for the, the community um, in the 50s. And, it's rather sad to, to see it gone. I think uh, he tried to domesticate this, this area, didn't he, by shortening the names from Notting Hill to the yes. hill, from Bayswater to the water, from, and so on. So, so it kind of became a, a, a manageable map that people could yes. navigate. Yes, I hadn't thought of that, but actually... 
It's the hill, the water, the yeah, gates. Yeah, they become sort of rural, yeah, it, local you, you landmarks. Only, and that's why he says it's, it's, I think he says it's to Galahad. It's not Bayswater to you, it's water to you. Right, right. Till you've been here for two years. Yes, yes. And you can, you can venture out yes. of that sort of circumscribed area. Yes, yes. And Tanti, of course, the she wonderful <laughs> aunt of uh, Tolroy. Yes, she one time, she, she just stays in this area, but one extraordinary time she manages to get all the way to and Great Portland terrified Street. terrified yes. and she wants to get back as fast <laughs> as possible. Get back as quickly as possible, yeah. 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 So it's an excursion out, you know. So it is that kind of, of a migrant, it's very much the migrant vision in a new city. And you see things differently. You see things as an outsider rather than as an yes. insider. Yes, and you can see how important that existing community must have been. He stand up there on Queensway watching everybody going about their business and a feeling of loneliness and fright come on him all of a sudden. He forget all the brave words he was talking to Moses and he realised that here he is in London and he ain't have money or work or place to sleep or any friend or anything. And he's standing up here by the tube station watching people. And everybody looks so busy he frightened to ask questions from any of them. So we're standing now uh, by Queensway tube station and that's such a poignant moment in the book when Galahad, who's so full of confidence when he arrives in the, in the city, heads out into London for the first time on his own and suddenly is overwhelmed by this sense of, of panic, of isolation and loneliness. And I feel like, you know, that title is such a well-chosen title because the theme of loneliness runs through this book. How important is loneliness to this vision of London? I think it's, it's key. I mean, of course, it's loneliness of the Londoners. It's not only the West Indian migrants. But the, I think the point is there's a kind of double thing going on throughout, which is um, the idea of journeying to the centre of the world, which is you have with Galahad at this, you know, he comes to this Queensway station and he looks around and he realises he's alone in this huge metropolis, a colonial alone in the metropolis. He's also a migrant alone in the metropolis. And he doesn't know anyone. There's no community. And so there's this journey to the centre, what they think is to the centre of the world. And then that huge sense of alienation, so that it goes in a kind of two directions, both romance for the city and, and arrival, at the same time as complete disenchantment and fear. And that's um, heightened by the, the way in which they speak English, a v version of English, but the language that they know doesn't describe the reality that they live in. So there's this disjunct between trying to map the city, trying to look at the sky or the birds yes. in the sky. They don't know the names of the plants, the names of the flowers. You know, yes. It's like you know they knew what apples and daffodils were in the Caribbean because they read Wordsworth. But you know, they get to England and what they thought was this, this construction, of course, which was a myth, is, doesn't exist. And there's, there's that wonderful line. I wonder, have you got it there about Galahad looking up at the sun, standing where we're standing yeah, now? I mean, yes, that's exactly what I mean. He stares at the sun, the sun shining, but Galahad never see the sun look like how it's looking now. No heat from it. It's just there in the sky like a force-ripe orange. When you look up, the colour of the sky is so desolate it makes him more frightened. It have a kind of melancholy aspect about the morning that making him shiver. And, of course, he's still standing there in his tropical suit. <laughs> right, yes. And he begins to realise, actually, 
Actually, the bravado I'll... was so great, the front he had was so great that he hasn't even felt the cold. And then he stares up at the sun and he can't even describe the sun yeah. because the sun in Trinidad or in the Caribbean would have been a very different colour and would have had a warmth. Yes, a kind of white heat, whereas here it's, it's kind of muted and And, and it's probably foggy yes, as well, so yes. it's, it's kind of misty around the sun. It's really, yeah, it's so moving that bit. And, and you're right, all the different names and languages and but also the way of living in London is so different because you know back home everyone knows each other's business everyone's talking to each other whereas in London he has that line um, London not like Kingston you know a man could get lost here easy it have millions of people living here and your friend could be living in London for years and you never see him yeah and I think that's a it's a it's true it's still today and it's a scary idea it is and actually that's that's the whole point about the way in which Selvon describes the city because it's kind of a automated world where things are kind of almost mechanical and dislocated and like that unreal city going back to the T.S. Yes. Eliot it's it's a moment of of change and that automation is kind of enacted partly through the way the boys are objectified by the white society for example at the labor exchange when you yes. go there by their color by their voices and and they haven't had that mirror reflection of themselves like that before. And hence their ballads are more and more important as a way of cohesion. And holding yeah. their yeah. identity together. Yeah. So it's a modern city, and, yes. and we all know about that atomized city, which many of us live in today. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> Just while we're talking about that objectification and the difficulty of that experience, how does Selvon approach racism in this novel? Because that was a, another major element of the experience of these immigrants in the 50s? I think he somehow divorces the boys' blackness, in a sense, from their personality. So there's that important episode with Galahad when he encounters, I think, a child in a buggy and, and, yeah. the, and, and the child starts crying. He goes up to try and you know, be endearing to this child. And the child is horrified by seeing a black man for the first time. But then he goes back to his room and he stares at his hand and he says, you know, it's you that's causing all this botheration. And it's really like, you know, that kind of um, divided self of the colonial, you know, the blackface white masks um, yes. of Franz Fanon, and it's actually Moses deals with that all the time as well. You know, he blows his nose and there's black on his handkerchief. His and he plays around, around with the notion of colour. And there's the objectification of, you know, white women pursuing black men and black men pursuing white women. And he separates that blackness from those people because of, it's, so, it's so absurd for them to think yes. that someone's reacting against them because of their colour and Galahad actually says well white people don't like the colour black it's not me yes it's not it's not me it's yeah. he complains yeah. to the colour yeah. like, black yeah. why are you why are yeah. you black and he says why can't you be blue why can't you be red yeah. or green exactly um, yeah. you know people don't seem to like the colour yeah. and and yeah, it's, it's like heartbreaking you know, yeah I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we've dropped into a cafe now on Queensway, and it's a real pleasure to meet Howard Jeffrey, MBE, who is the chairman of uh, the Pepper Pot Centre in Labrick Grove. Howard your mother, Pansy Jeffries, set up the Pepper Pot Centre in the 1980s to be a community centre for the West Indian community in this area. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how she came to set it up and, and, and why she did? She was working at the, at the Citizens Advice Bureau in Labra Grove and uh, there was a growth of Caribbean people living in the area and we we're, were getting to get a certain age where they were looking for places to go when they retired. And they weren't comfortable going to some of the organizations which are offered for the local people. So she thought that she'd try and find a place or set up an organization that could support people who felt disenfranchised and felt discriminated. But it's not exclusive for Caribbean people. We have people from Ireland, all over the world, who come to use Pepper Pot as a day center for uh -huh. having lunch now. But started off as a Caribbean initiative. Around Fantastic. the carnival also, because my mother was very much involved in the first North Hill carnival. I was a steward in the first carnival, and you won't believe they had five stewards. Wow. And you can imagine, there wasn't a million people there, probably 100,000, so it was, they got out of control eventually, right, right. and it is what it is today. It's fascinating to me that the book we're talking about today, The Lonely Londoners, was written in 1956, just a couple of years before the Notting Hill uprisings, the riots of 1958, and it was out of that conflict that the carnival first appeared and there's some um, one of the most memorable scenes in the book is a is a fate a, a party that happens at St Pancras Town Hall mm. which is hosted by one of the, the characters in the book and it's it's a wonderful sort of exuberant scene with with dancing and calypso music and a steel band and it's extraordinary to me that the the Notting Hill Carnival which is such a fixture of the London calendar now before it came to the streets, the first iteration of that carnival was in St Pancras Town Hall. It's almost as if Sam Selvon was predicting that this was going to happen. Sam Selvon, I don't know him well. I know he's contemporary of someone called George Lamin, Correct. who lived with us in my house. Really? So, yeah, I know George for years, and I haven't seen him for about four or five years. But, but what I could say was that um, in those days, Caribbean people had events. Right. 
different names. Some call them shabins, some call them blues, some call them parties where they mix together, play calypso, play blue beat was the thing in those days, became a movie into reggae, where it was almost not quite segregated, but it was where they felt comfortable. They had their music and the people attended, they paid money to go in and so forth. And, and the, the carnival kind of came out of that expression right. of having something on a wider basis. Yep. And of course it's now a couple of different ball game. It's nobody, so enormous. Nobody now, imagined it? it would get like this. And there are issues with the carnival, but it's still going. But so it came off of that grassroots feeling about something for yourself, something was Caribbean. In a very, I can't imagine what it was like in 19, I came in 62. Britain was just different countries from those days, you know. The signs were there, the sign, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, was written. And it was happy, nobody said anything about it. And people use all kind of language which they wouldn't use now. They might think about it, but they wouldn't use it now. But the Caribbean people um, found a way of creating something for themselves. So thinking about the Pepper Pot Centre today and the, the community that you work with, there was a wonderful line in the film you shared with me that your mother set up Pepper Pot in response to discrimination and loneliness in that community. And loneliness is a idea that we've been talking about this morning with the lonely lunch. Serious issue. And I was wondering how, whether you feel like that has changed and whether what the experience of that community is today. Is it still a lonely... Loneliness is that you're on the seventh floor of a block of flats. Your daughter, her son, her grandchildren are all living their own lives. You're stuck there. You can't move around. You're, you're immobile. What Pepper Potter's done, we got a van bringing people for lunch so they have a chance to have a little bit of lunch a bit of food to eat and so forth but isolation is the biggest issue and I used to be working in, in education and I got my principal two or three years to give me 12 computers so we built a computer suite of pepper pot and the idea is technology you can be isolated but you have technology to connect the good thing if you come to see the pepper pot club when they're doing IT people are talking to their daughter in America that's in amazing. the Caribbean. Yes. So we're using technology now to, to break down the loneliness right. and the kind of isolation, which is not the solution, but it, it's, it's a way of moving forward, using technology to do that. But in my street, I've been living there for 30 years. If you ask me the name of my seven neighbors, I might know. <laughs> Good morning, hello, Christmas cards, but it, it's not that kind of... The Caribbean is different. You know everybody. Everybody knows you, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and everyone's walk. It's all outside, you know. So there's a yard, you know, the people are talking to each other. But it's interesting what you were saying about communication through technology, because in a way what Sam was also doing was finding a way of creating avenues of communication through the way the boys talk to each other. So it's a different way it worked, through telling of those ballads and stories. But now, of course, we communicate through the Internet and through Skype and through those kinds of ways with people all over the world Britain is a very interesting country I live a lot in America I work in America far more integrated here in one way you know you go and see when Americans come and you think wow so many people mixed races going on in America it's still a kind of thing yes but there's another side to race in Britain which you don't often see so in a way um, things have changed and people are more comfortable. But Pepperpot is there because people feel when they come in there, they're in their zone. It's their place, it's their world, and they feel comfortable. And also they've done time. They've done their 90s, and they now want to just enjoy it. And this thing about going back home, you can't go back home. Nobody's there, everybody's dead. So they're here now. This generation, this my mum's generation, some went back. 
But most this, of them this was here. a generation that arrived in the 50s and 60s. early 60s. And always back home. Mm-hmm. 60 years later, where are you going back home? <laughs> back home is, is, is Labra Grove now. It's, it's amazing that even in the mid-50s, Sam Selvon is already describing exactly the same thing, that people are coming to Britain expecting to go back home and that idea becomes a kind of fantasy that they're not going to... It was a fantasy achieve. always, actually, because you're leaving an economically weaker place, go back to a weaker economy. A lot of people save money. I'll give you mm-hmm. an example. The people who work for Vauxhall Company in Luton, they all came from St Kitts. When Vauxhall closed down... A lot of them took their money and bought houses in, in St. Kitts with the idea of going back. They went back, but it didn't work for some of them. St. Kitts was a holiday place, but not, they couldn't live there. They were in their 60s it wasn't and thinking, what are we going to do every day? So they, a lot of them came back. So the illusion about going back is, I think, done. It's shattered. We're here. So let's see how we can carve out something in this part of the world where we're comfortable. So, Sheila, can I um, ask you, because I feel like one of... In recent years, one of the big news stories around this community has been what's been called the Windrush Scandal. In your fantastic book, Brave New Words, which you've edited, which is a, in part a celebration of the 100th issue of Wasafiri, you talk about how language and the role of writers is more urgent now than ever. And I wonder, I wonder if you feel like The Lonely Londoners is just as urgent as it ever was, perhaps more so than it ever was today. I do think that, and actually just... just I think one thing to say around Windrush as well is that there's a kind of myth of Windrush. You know, black people have been in this country since the 18th century. You know, the war is often seen as that kind of turning point when everything changed and Britain became a multicultural society, as was shown at the Olympic ceremony. But look what happened, you know, only a few years later with the whole hostility narrative of the Conservative government and the Windrush scandal. But I think it is as urgent as it ever has been. And one of the things which, you know, which is probably like the pepper pot, which which actually happened in the 1930s, was there was, in the East End, there was a guy called um, Kamal Chumchi, who was um, part Sri Lankan, part English. He was a mixed race. He started a place which was then called a Coloured Man's Institute. It was a similar, it was men, women, it was people of mixed race, meeting, eating, Mm. in a safe space. And I think this thing about Britain and the narrative which we all need to counter, which is why writing is important, is that the only way you can break down those kinds of ways of thinking is through language and through writing. So writing remains as urgent as ever. And it's a place where you can hear voices talking in lots of different ways about lots of different things. So there's a dialogue. There's always a dialogue. And in a sense, the boys in Moses' room enable that. And the pepper pot probably enables that too. People can talk Conversation freely, over food. Yeah, in, in a free-thinking way. Yes, yes. Yeah. There's a lo- wonderful line in an article that the Nigerian novelist Helen Habela wrote in The Guardian in 2007, where he, he's writing about the lonely Londoners. And he says, The message of the lonely Londoners is even more vital today than in 50s Britain that although we live in societies increasingly divided along racial, ideological and religious lines, we must remember that what we still have in common are humanity. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and it's, it's that plurality of, of literature as a space that enables that. But it, it's also, I think, about the fact that literature really opens up new ways of thinking. So in our current political climate and the kind of sound bites we get on the television every day, you know, how do you counter that? You can only counter that through creating alternative myths, alternative language, 
And in a sense, Sam Selvam was already doing that what by doing. deconstructing the myth of the motherland and deconstructing racism in Britain and showing how ridiculous being anti-black, so-called, was. No. Just going back to something you were saying just now about the difference between America and the UK, that's something that, again, Sam picks up on in this book, and he, he has two of the characters describe the difference between the experience of racism in America and in the UK, and in America they describe it as much more explicit and people will say outright, you know, don't come into the shop, you know. Whereas in the UK, the way they describe it in the book is it's much more subtle and, 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 and kind of more insidious. That No one will say it to your face, but they'll just, job opportunities won't be there. And you can absolutely see why a community would need to come together and get strength from being together because it's hard to, it's hard sometimes to put your finger on the problem in the UK. It's more subtle. Right. Insidious is a very good word, actually. It does describe how it is, and it is different. My oldest son's partner is white. Two lovely children. And they don't deal with it, but they know that at some stage they go into a room where their children will be seen because they are of colour. So there's that going on. But I think, back to Pepperport in a way, they've analysed that and they've checked it out and said, OK, but we're here and we are going to enjoy what Britain has. Pepperpot has a role to play. And I, I think what your co- Sam Selvin wrote about, about London, has changed, but there's some things in there which are still credence today. Fantastic. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your taking the time out of your day. And, and you're, I think you're heading off to Pepperpot now. I am. Right? It's my Pepperpot day. <laughs> Pepperpot day. <laughs> well, thank you. And um, we really appreciate it. Okay, good. Thanks very much. Thank you. He goes into the gardens and begins to walk to the arch, seeing so much cat about the place, laying down on the grass, sitting and talking, all of them in pretty summer colours. The grass green, the sky blue, sun shining, flowers growing, the fountain spouting water, the Galahad Esquire strolling through all of this, three, four pounds in the pocket, sharp clothes on, Lord, oh Lord, going to meet the first-class craft that's waiting for him in the circus. So we're walking through Kensington Gardens now. It's, it's actually a really, although it's a winter's day, it's really a sunny day, and it's, a, it's such a beautiful open expanse of park here. The trees are heading off in avenues in lots of different directions as we're walking along. No leaves on the trees at all but it's a bright, fresh day with a bright blue sky. And this is another way that the book moves from, into different moods throughout. It starts in the freezing cold of winter, but there's wonderful passages describing the summer in London and the way that London changes in the summer. And this is the place where summer is most often described, with people lying out on the grass, wearing summer dresses, flirting, looking hoping to pick up girls. It's a place where people come to relax and, and unwind Kensington Gardens. Yes, I mean, it, one of the most um, powerful passages in the whole novel is the 10 or 11 pages, which is, which is unpunctuated. I think it's almost one sentence all the way yes, long. Yes, yes. Um, which is kind of epiphany to summer. 
and Selvon talks about the trees beginning to put on leaves again and he talks about, as you say, white pussy. Um, he talks about the latent and actually explicit sexuality of that moment when spring and summer burst. As we all know, on a hot summer's day, when everybody goes out, they expose their bodies, yes. they lie there, the reticence is removed or seems to be removed. And it's also a hunting ground. It kind of, There's also a, a kind of threatening sexuality about it in terms both of the black men who are sought after by white women and the white women who are chased to some extent by black men, although many of them... There's a kind of element of prostitution going on. So there's a, yes. it is a bit like a kind of, still a kind of underworld, despite the, the beauty of, of the, the descriptions. While we're on that subject, how would you describe the portrayal of women in the novel? Because the, the central characters are very much the boys. It's a very sort of male-centric novel from that point of view. And, and the women are often described... I guess in quite an objectifying way, they're described as a, a piece of skin or a sharp craft, or sometimes they're literally called a thing. I picked up a thing the other night. How do you react to that reading the novel today? I think one of the things, in a sense, that maybe dates it is that moment of migration, which was primarily West Indian men in London, and a particularly what seems to be now a misogynistic male culture. The women are as much objectified, of course, as the men are objectified, yes. as racially and sexually. And there's quite a lot of scenes in the novel where Selvon is actually also showing how black men are being used by rich white women and for their pleasure. Um, but it is quite uh, unpleasant, I think, now, or certainly reading it through a modern lens, you, you feel that way in which women are presented as catches really um, is is not in certainly in keeping with how one would wish women to be seen in any sense then or now and Sam Selvon was criticized for that later on the other hand I think one thing that does come out with this whole description of Kensington Gardens is is yeah. a kind of kind of modernist, almost James Joycean vision um, of, of language trying to transform a space into something else. That, that passage you were describing just now, that 10-page sequence, is, is quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's very, it's very different to the rest of the book, and it really sort of, it comes quite near the end of the book, and you really, um, it's an absolutely kind of bravura passage you feel like applauding at the end of it because it's this sort of sustained breath of exuberance and joy and it's that it's that double thing again of this huge romance and lyrical and almost poetic depiction of the city Mm. city dressed up the city ready to go the new year beginning uh, rebirth all of that and then the deflation after that when you end up moving again back to Moses's basement room where yes, they're all entrapped. Yes, the claustrophobic yeah. basement. One of the most memorable and, uh, and enjoyable characters in the book is, is Tolroy's aunt, known as Tanti, who is this great kind of larger-than-life character who uh, the moment she steps off the boat train is um, kind of putting on her nice straw hat and 
wanting to get a picture for the Evening Standard. And, um, but I think my favourite scene with her is the one we mentioned earlier, the party that Harris hosts at the St Pancras Town Hall which is this wonderful comic scene. It's, it's a moment where all the characters come together and, and they're leaning on the bar and getting up to all sorts of scrapes. And Tanti is dead set on having a dance with Harris and kind of barges her way through the um, crowd and grabs hold of him. And, and the, the description of them dancing is fantastic. No, absolutely. You know, it's kind of like the climax of what has been a sort of partly tragic, partly comic kind of epic, mythical, but also realistic story about this movement to London where they all come together. It's, it, you know, everyone's going to let their hair down. Um, everybody's in character, in a sense. It's almost like a, a stage set, in a way. Everybody's in character. All those characters that you've been reading about all the way through the novel are doing the things you would expect them to be doing. And Harris, of course, who's the la di um, character has the Times just visible under his yeah, armpit, sticking out of his pocket, is the one leading this. But of course, this was really prescient in the sense that, in fact, St Pancras Town Hall became the site of the first Caribbean carnival in London. And in a way, that, that idea of music, music transforming, music doing the writing that we were talking about earlier, is brought together in this whole carnivalesque moment which is also a comic moment and a comic climax to the novel in some respects and I think the dances and the and the music was was a really really important part of the Caribbean community at the time I know Sam when I when I was interviewing Beryl Gilroy who's a, a female writer who was here in the 50s from Guyana she talked to me about dancing with Sam at some of these parties really? and saying what a great dancer he was. Was he? Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine it. But where his description of that scene, you can tell he, he was really enjoying it. OK, let's, we're right on the fringes of the West End here, so let's head into London and towards Piccadilly Circus. Why don't we cross over there? Uh, can we do that? Why should they keep just going around? So look, there it is, but it, gosh, it is tiny and it's kind of hidden by this brass arrow. So, so we're standing in front of uh, the World Time Today clock in, in Piccadilly Circus Station. And this is where Galahad meets his girlfriend, Daisy, when he walks through um, Kensington Gardens to, to meet her. The World Time Today clock is an extraordinary thing. It's a world map um, with a with a time bar along the centre of it. And it's actually not working today, but normally that bar is lit up and moving um, at all times so that it's showing the correct time for every place in the world simultaneously. It's quite an amazing idea. And you sense that Galahad chose this meeting spot because he's quite proud that it shows his home country, his, his island of Trinidad. And he wants to, um, you know, point it out to Daisy. And, and she's rather dismissive when he sort of points out this dot on the map. And it reminds me of that um, line that Sam Selvon wrote. He says, I was from a small island that might be flicked off the map like a speck of dirt from a jacket. And you feel like he was thinking of a map like this, where it is, you know, a tiny... His island, his home, is a tiny little speck, whereas 
Britain is in the center. It's it's kind of it's got a light bulb on this map showing where it is. It's really uh, prominent. Yeah, I think yes. I mean, I think one of the things for Sam Selvon as a writer, and he said this many times in interviews and on panels, was that to when he arrived in London, everybody thought the only thing they knew about the Caribbean was Jamaica for some reason. They knew very little about the, as Salman Rushdie once said, you know, the trouble with the British is their history happened overseas, but they knew very little about their overseas history. And the Caribbean islands were part of that history. And I think one of the things that Sam Selvon wanted to show in all his work was that Trinidad wasn't just a tiny speck um, on the world map. And I think it's kind of ironic this moment when Galahad meets Daisy, because yes, he takes her to the world map and Trinidad is a speck. And it really puts in perspective the fact that Piccadilly or Eros and the statue of Eros is seen as the center of the world for the colonial. So it's both the colonial dream and also a nightmare in the sense that it, it, it reduces and expands again, this, this kind of inflation deflation or utopia dystopia right. all at the same time. Why don't we talk a little bit about how time works in this novel? Because it's not, it's not a linearly structured novel um, and time passes in a, in a kind of slightly mysterious way as you read it. Yes, because it, it is episodic, it's picaresque. These are stories that are recounted at different times. But what we do have is a sense of the seasons passing. Yes. We have the sense actually of bus time, getting on the bus where the novel starts, going to Waterloo to meet the boat train. But in a way, it's this shift between a, a naturalism and a realism and a surrealism, which in a sense creates or clouds the passage of time. And, and, and Moses increasingly feels that nothing is happening. Even though seasons are passing, he's not going anywhere. There's a stasis underneath the banter and the language and the movement, which leaving you standing in the same spot. And it's funny how time gets kind of concertinaed because at the beginning of the novel there's a roughly sort of sequential series of events of Galahad arriving and being shown the ropes by Moses but there are lots of flashbacks to earlier stories that Moses is telling or memories he's having and even at the moment that he meets Galahad the narrator says and thus Henry Oliver Esquire alias Sir Galahad arrives in London and swelled the population by one uh, and then it says and eight and a half months later there's a junior Galahad walking on the streets. And so, firstly, Galahad's got busy quite quickly, but also um, there's that sense of sort of time suddenly speeding up for that section and you suddenly jump ahead into the future. Mm. And it's very it's fluid. It's not at all linear. It. It's not at all. It's a cyclical all. narrative, narrative right, more than right. anything else rather yes. than a linear one. Absolutely. Um, and it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it doesn't go, there's no plot, so to speak. There's no movement from A to B. Um, the movement is the stories. Exactly. Well, let's head up above ground again to talk about Piccadilly Circus itself. Always from the first time he went there to see Eros and the Lights, that circus have a magnet for him, that circus represent life. That circus is the beginning and the ending of the world. Every time he go there, he have the same feeling like when he see it the first night, drink Coca-Cola, any time is Guinness time, Bovril and the fireworks, a million flashing lights, people sitting and standing and walking and talking and laughing and buses and cars and Galahad Esquire in all this, standing there in the big city in London. Oh Lord. 
Oh, Sushila, thank you. That, that's so well read and that's such a great quotation. And I think anyone who comes to Piccadilly Circus, where we're standing now, has a sense of that feeling of like, this is the centre of things happening, these big bright lights. There's still the Coca-Cola advert up there that Galahad's talking about. And you, I think it's easy to get a sense of that feeling of the attraction of this exciting city. Um, but I think what, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I think it's so astute, such a good reading of the book, that there are these complementary forces going on in the novel, and there's both this attraction to London and then also a kind of um, repulsion, a kind of feeling of being trapped by that, almost like m moths to a flame and just can't escape that pull of it. And you start to feel that towards the end of a novel that Moses would like to escape, and he... He's probably never going to be able to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think this scene, especially at Piccadilly, is 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 a moment of the climactic moment for Galahad as the kind of gallivanter about man about town, who's the alter ego of Moses and who's making a new life in the city and wearing his smart suits and catching his woman Daisy and so on. But it is both dream and nightmare, and it is dream and nightmare throughout the novel. And I think the kind of nightmarish elements are beneath the kind of glitz and the glitter and the, you know, the those flashing light, very flashing lights that, that lure him. And, and actually, if you look at the covers of the novel as, as it was published across time, you know, the first cover in 1956 is, is a fairly realistic, social realistic cover. Um, there was one, I think, in the 70s when Longman was publishing it where you have a Galahad sort of almost starstruck by Eros, where the whole of Piccadilly Circus is portrayed as a surrealistic montage of lights flashing right, and, right. And, and almost like a, a painting. It is very much the centre of the world. The naming is the centre of Britain as colonial metropolis, not as the centre of the world, which he thinks it is, of course. Well, as we're drawing to a close, I wonder if this is a good moment to say that Sam Selvan, of course, did escape from London, and he left the country in 1978. He went to Canada with his wife, and you stayed in touch with him when he was there. And he returned to London a few times, I believe. But what happened to him after he'd left England? He, he always said he wanted to go back to the Western Hemisphere. Um, I think he was quite sad to leave London, and I think London was in many ways the inspiration for some of his best work, although he wrote The Lonely Londoners in the US on a, when he was on a sort of Guggenheim or some kind of scholarship. I mean, he needed the distance to write it, right, as, as many writers would say yeah. about, about their work. Um, after he left Britain, he came back several times. We, you know, He came back to publish Moses Ascending, Moses Migrating. I did quite a few tours with him. Um, and the last tour I did with him, he read um, unusual pieces. He started to read from his more existentialist, philosophical, non-fictional essays, um, which, which were quite interesting. So he did start a new novel, a, a big novel about the Caribbean diaspora. And he was honoured. He got the gold medal in Trinidad, which is one of the highest medals you can get. And he died in 1994. He died in Trinidad, actually. He always said, I don't think he expected to die in Trinidad, but he actually died 
in transit, which I think he would have, on reflection, felt was quite funny as he yes. moved out of one hospital to get on a plane to go to Canada. Well, Sushila, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real delight to walk the streets of Sam Selvon's London with you. And I feel like uh, you've really brought him and the book to life for us today. So I'm really grateful. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. At the end of a novel, Moses comes down to the River Thames and leans on the embankment, looking out over the water and musing on the events of a novel. And we've got a recording here of Sam Selvon reading the last couple of paragraphs of the book. Here they are. One night of any night, Lyman on the embankment near to Chelsea, he stand up on the bank of the river, watching the lights of the buildings reflected in the water, thinking what he must do, if he should save up money and go back home, if he should try to make it by next year before he changes his mind again. The old Moses standing on the banks of the Thames. Sometimes he thinks he sees some sort of profound realisation in his life, as if all that happened to him was experience that make him a better man, as if now he could draw apart from any hustling and just sit down and watch other people fight to live. Under the kif-kif laughter, behind the ballad and the episode, the what happening, the summer is hearts, he could see a great aimlessness, a great restless swaying movement that leaving you standing in the same spot. As if a fallen shadow of doom fallen all the spades in the country as if he could see the black faces bobbing up and down in the millions of white strained faces, everybody hustling along the strand, the spades jostling in the crowd, bewildered, hopeless. As if on the surface things don't look so bad, but when you go down a little, you bounce up a kind of misery and pathos and a frightening what? He don't know the right word, but he have the right feeling in his heart. And then the very last thoughts of a novel are Moses looking out over the river and imagining becoming a writer himself. He says, over in France, all kinds of fellas writing books, what turning out to be bestsellers. Taxi driver, porter, road sweeper, it didn't matter. One day you're sweating in the factory and the next day all the newspapers have your name and photo saying how you are a new literary giant. He watched a tugboat on the Thames, wondering if he could ever write a book like that, what everybody would buy. Many thanks to Sushila Nasta, Howard Jeffrey and the Pepperpot Centre, and to Sushila and the Sam Selvon Estate for allowing us to play those recordings of Sam Selvon, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. One last thing. In a poem by Cecil Gray, the Trinidadian poet, called Your Island, Your World, he wrote this about Sam Selvon. You took the small language used by the island for pekong and calypsos and stretched its vowels across the mouth of the world, placed us 
as raw as uncured rum, with every sweet nuance we used for survival in pubs and underground stations of London. I knew every square mile gave you its story, each dust pile its gold. All of it was your island, all of it your world. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 